Hi, welcome to True Creeps, where the stories are true and the creeps are real. We'll cover stories from grotesque gore to the possibly plausible paranormal, to horrifying history, to tense and terrible true crime, and everything else that goes bump in the night. We're your hosts, Amanda, and I'm Lindsay, and we want you to join us while we creep. We cover mature topics. Listener discretion is advised. Hello, everybody. Today, we are going to discuss a bomber that is known as the Mad Bomber, which is a very dramatic name, I feel like. It is. Yeah. And so from 1940 to 1956, he placed over 30 bombs around New York City. And he was eventually discovered. His name is George Metesky. And what's interesting is that he was discovered through one of the first uses of criminal profiling in the United States. And we'll get into that later. But that's one of the things that drew us to this case, other than the dramatic name. The dramatic name. And then, yeah, all I think of is like Reed. It like created criminal minds for me. Don't you know it? <laughs> Whenever anybody says criminal profiler, they're all Reed. Always. All of them are. Everyone in my head. Yeah, they're all like different variations of Reed's haircuts all in a room. Yeah, because <laughs> there's such a, an array, such a vast spectrum of haircuts. There is. Every season, I believe. Because we've talked about it before, I feel like it is semi-relevant. But his mm -hmm. new kids book can be pre-ordered now. And I've oh. already pre-ordered it. I love that. <laughs> he does have a fun and goofy kind of children's book vibe that... I enjoy. His first one was a masterpiece. <laughs> it truly was. It truly was. But we're talking about the Mad Bomber today. So to start, we're going to talk about Metesky's life before the bombings began to kind of show how he got to be the person who left more than 30 bombs around New York City. That's crazy to me. Just the sheer number. Just the sheer number, because it's not like you can go buy them. You have to build them. Mm-hmm. So he was born on May 23rd of 1903, and he was the son of Lithuanian immigrants. And that's not a particularly important fact, other than we'll bring it up later why it's like, oh, interesting. So just put a pin in that. So in 1931, when he was in his late 20s, he was injured at work and he worked at the United Industrial Light and Power Company, which was a subsidiary of Consolidated Edison, also known as Con Ed. So what happened was he inhaled boiler fumes. Which, like, when I think about that, I feel like it, it wouldn't be great for you. It would irritate you. But I'm, like, concerned with what it would do overall. So not too long ago, I was coming down with some type of, like, cold or something like that. And it happened right around the time that I did a dumb thing, which happens very often where <laughs> I attribute my signs of illness to a logical other reason that has nothing to do with said illness. But so I was cooking and we recently got a cast iron pan recently-ish. And it was the first time I'd ever used it. So, of course, I'm like burning the fuck out of things. And because the smoke is starting in the room that I'm in, I'm not realizing how smoky it's getting until Ben comes up from the basement and is like, what is happening? Is the house on fire? Yeah, he's like, can you breathe? <laughs> Should we leave? Can anyone breathe? The air is dense in here, Lindsay. And I'm like, oh, gosh. So like, I'm like propping open the doors, opening windows because it was very smoky, but I was so focused on like doing all the things that I didn't notice. And so I was in there cooking for a very long time <laughs> in smoke. Oh, God. And so, of course, like my lungs hurt and my throat hurt. 
which led me down a very particular Googling path of, can I cook my own meat? Did I cook myself on the inside? Was basically what I wanted to <laughs> Did know. You smoke yourself? I wanted to know if I smoked myself because I was in there and like I had to deal with the smoke once it had begun, you know, and I was like in the middle of cooking something, a.k.a. burning the fuck out of something. And so one of the things that I saw is that one (laughs) cooking fumes are terrible for you. Yes. Which, yes, it makes logical sense that fumes of any sort are not good, but it had never occurred to me that cooking fumes in particular are, like, really bad for you. Specifically, whatever type of pan you use, though. Yes, also that. Some of them have, like, warnings on them telling you to, like, not use it near birds because it'll kill birds. But even just like cast iron or stainless steel pans, the oils in them as they cook are incredibly bad for you. And for some lung-related illnesses, they have been historically leading causes of death for women because they've spent more time cooking in the kitchen than men. And I was like, that blew my mind. But all that to say, really hot fucking air, inhaling it can make you feel really terrible. I actually had a cold, but I don't think that this didn't make that not bad. I think that the convergence of the two made an issue, you know? That's fair. I was more already skipping ahead because obviously I know what happened to him. But thinking of what happened with him specifically and blaming it on the boiler fumes, I was like up in the air with, hmm, would that happen? You know? That makes sense. So Metesky inhales these boiler fumes. And it allegedly takes him 26 weeks to recover because he gets pneumonia and that then turns into tuberculosis. And pneumonia is when you have fluid in your lungs. So I could absolutely see how you could have fluid in your lungs if you severely damaged them, if they were burned from the inside. Yeah. I mean, maybe he, like you, got a cold at the same time and then the damage, you know, like added to this. But even if he just had the damage, I think that the fluid could have occurred. And then if his lungs were healing and there was fluid, I could see an infection or i.e. tuberculosis setting in because that was tuberculosis time. But regardless, clearly he's not doing well. Yeah. Yeah. He tried to file a workman's comp claim, but he was denied. And I saw two separate reasons for this. The first was that he took too long to file the claim. And the second was that he was denied because doctors couldn't find anything wrong with him. That's interesting. That's very interesting. I feel for him if it's the first one, because he's still like figuring stuff out. Mm -hmm. You know, if it took him a little bit longer, I think that that should be allowed, especially if it was a workplace injury. Yeah. The second one made me like, huh. Like, oh, no. Yeah. And as we learn more, that second one, you're like, well, maybe. Right. For sure. So he appealed the denial three times, but it stuck. And during this time, he lived with his sisters. And as the denials continued and he like presumably didn't feel good and was unemployed and not fiscally independent, he started to really resent his old employer, which he considered to be Con Ed because it was the parent company of where he worked, which was United Industrial Light and Power Company. So before we actually get into the bombings themselves, let's talk a little bit about that parent company. So they are now one of the nation's largest gas utility companies, which is wild. I hadn't heard of them because I live on the other side of the US. Yeah. But over there, they control a lot. I've definitely heard of them. Yeah. Yeah. So 
The company began on November 11th, 1884, with a large merger that took place. However, its history can be traced further back with a company called the New York Gas Light Company, which was founded in 1823. So it goes back even further. And the merger I just mentioned was between the New York, Manhattan, Metropolitan, Municipal, Knickerbocker, and Harlem Gas Companies. And all of them merged and united as Consolidated Gas. Interestingly, before they all merged, they would literally battle for customers. So I saw they would battle or they would like remove some of the other ones, like their rivals' mains, and then install their own. So it was just like a shit show. I would be so fucking mad about that. (laughs) Yeah. Right? You're like, y'all figure out who's going to deal with this because I just need my resources. Yeah, there's a whole thing. (laughs) Like with the history of how they'd all like bicker. And it was just fascinating to me. So remember, they were gas companies. In December of 1879, Thomas Edison kind of changed the game with his hot new invention, the incandescent light bulb. And so electric lamps became popular, obviously, because they were pretty cool. And the gas companies had to find new uses for their product. So they started doing a lot more with like using gas for heating and cooking and things like that. The gas companies had to combine in order to survive. So that's where that like big merger took place. And while the gas companies combined, the bulk of Manhattan's electricity supply ended up collecting in 1898 under the umbrella company called the New York Gas and Electric Light, Heat, and Power Company, which is a very long string of words. They also had gained a controlling share of the Edison Electric Illuminating Company. And so that being said a lot of various companies, Consolidated Gas then bought the electric part. So that long string of words, the New York Gas and Electric Light Heat and Power Company, all of them joined forces in 1899. Now, it's a lot of companies all continually like buying each other and absorbing each other. And it's a lot. So to sum it up, throughout the years, the company that Metesky worked for, they ended up acquiring steam, gas, and electric companies and served New York City and Westchester County. Now, going back to electricity becoming more popular, when the electric sales started beating gas sales by quite a bit, the company then became Consolidated Edison Company of New York, Inc., in 1936. So this is about the time that he was working for them in the 30s. Gotcha. So what I'm hearing is that this is a very convoluted corporate past. Yeah, yeah. So he worked for them in 31, like Lindsay said earlier. This all was happening in 36. So it's like between then and 1936, that's when they were like absorbing each other and doing all this crazy stuff. So today, the company is a result of acquisitions, dissolutions, and mergers of more than 170 individual electric, gas, and steam companies. And it's also celebrating its 200 years this year, which I thought was interesting. They're also the longest continuously traded stock on the New York Stock Exchange. So the reason I bring that up is because I want to show what a big company they are today and how they made their way there. Because during the 30s, when he worked there, there's other things going on as they're like monopolizing, right? So Con Ed was looked at, obviously, as a monopoly because of what I just stated before. And many people weren't too thrilled about it. Mayor Fiorello LaGuardia even threatened to create a municipal power utility to compete with them during the Great Depression, which also 
was happening during this time. And what the company ended up doing is they had their executives develop better and closer relationships with other members of the city government, which in my head, you know, like when we think of like today's companies, it's just they got in with the right people to like get their way. Yeah. So another thing that like helped them get their way is during that time, they were the largest employer of construction workers and they paid the most taxes than any other single organization in the city during that time. And because of all those efforts, it said that they started to like mesh more with New York City after that. But anyway, so that was happening around the same time that he was working there. So I reviewed all that history to show that during this period of time, it seems like Con Ed was focused more on things like expanding and solidifying their importance. And when you consider that in light of the fact that OSHA, the Occupational Safety and Health Act, wasn't even enacted until 1970, you can see how the safety of the workers may not have been in the forefront of the executive minds. That makes sense. So now let's get into the bombings themselves. So they started on November 16th of 1940. And Matetsky's first bomb was found at Consolidated Edison. What a surprise. Right? It was found on a window ledge, and it was actually inside of a toolbox. And it was a pipe bomb but it never exploded. And an interesting point is, is that there was a note on top of the bomb that said, Con Edison Crooks, this is for you. Now, presumably, a functional bomb, a note doesn't really make sense, right? Because it would just burn in the explosion, right? And so because of that fact, police were like, we don't think that this person intended for this to go off because you wouldn't leave a note if this was supposed to go off because it would just burn. Nevertheless, police still investigated some like former employees that were frustrated, but they eventually dropped the case because no one was hurt. The bomb didn't go off. But then the next year in September of 1941, a bomb was found on 19th Street in an old sock. And this was near the Consolidated Edison Irving Plaza office. But this time there wasn't a note. So as a note, we're going to refer to who the bomber is, but they didn't know who he was. So Metesky sent a letter in December to police headquarters telling them that he was going to pause his activities until World War II was finished. In the letter, Metesky wrote, I will bring the Con Edison to justice. They will pay for their dastardly deeds. The letter had similar handwriting to that first note that was left on the windowsill at Con Edison, and it was signed with the initials FP. And we're going to refer to Metesky as FP as we continue, because that is how he's talked about in the stories, because that's what they knew. Yeah. They didn't know, obviously, who he was in the beginning, or they wouldn't have had these. So he was true to his word, and he did not leave any bombs during World War II. He did stop, but that didn't stop him from sending a lot of nasty letters. How considerate, though. You know, like, something bad's happening around the world. I guess I'll refrain from my bad thing. He's like, in the scheme of things, I understand this isn't the worst thing, but I'm still really not fucking pleased. Which, okay, okay. In 1950, after World War II had ended, he left a bomb in Grand Central Station. This bomb also did not explode. And also, that's like nine years between. Yeah. So a lot of people probably felt like, he's probably not coming back. Well, also keep in mind, right, like that first one didn't go off and then there's like a bomb in the sock. And like, I didn't see anything that said that that bomb went off and that bomb didn't have a note attached to it. So they don't know that they're the same people. So like, I would imagine at that point, the police are not even necessarily sure that these are the same person. They're just like, oh, this was you. OK, interesting, my dude. Yeah. And didn't that become like his 
signature in a sense is like putting them in socks. Yeah. So weird. So in April of 1950, a bomb exploded inside of a phone booth that was inside the New York Public Library. Next, there was a bomb that did explode at Grand Central Station. And there were several more bombs left around New York City in 1950, but there was very little media coverage. But despite this, people were still aware, right? Word of mouth is going to travel that there's bombs being left places and people in New York start to get really scared. Understandably. Yeah. FP wrote to the New York Herald soon after and said to the Herald Tribune editor, have you noticed the bombs in your city? If you're worried, I'm sorry. And also if anyone is injured, but it cannot be helped for justice will be served. I am not well. And for this, I will make the Con Edison sorry. Yes, they will regret their dastardly deeds. I will bring them before the bar of justice. Public opinion will condemn them. For beware, I will place more units under theater seats in the near future. FP. Yikes. The thought of living during that time and hearing, I mean, I guess that's how we feel today, right? Like going anywhere, bad things can happen. Movie theaters, anywhere. I mean, I'll tell you. So not too long ago, I was in a movie theater and during the movie, people ran in and were like running up and down the aisle. And Ben was like, I'm going to say something. And I was like, what if you just didn't? And he's like, but and I was like, but you don't know. It was like, we live in a world where you do not know what that person could do. Yeah. And they might just be waiting to be provoked. You just don't know. And it's not worth it. I'd rather miss five minutes of this movie than something really awful happen. Yeah. That's that's sad. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's sad, but it's not as sad as I'm an adult. Mm -hmm. I'm an adult and I can decide where I go. Yeah. Yeah. So let's move on to more things that he did. In 1951 and in 1952, he planted four bombs. Two were in movie theaters. One was in a phone booth and another was in a subway locker. In 1953, he did another four bombs. And then in 1954, he did four bombs as well. And one of those exploded at Radio City Music Hall, and it ended up injuring four people. So as we go through this, any of the bombs that have gone off did not kill anyone, but there were some substantial injuries. In 1955, he planted six bombs. Two did not explode, but one went off at Grand Central Station and nearly killed a porter. So in March of 1956, FP wrote another letter to the Herald Tribune because he was upset that there wasn't more coverage in the media. He said he placed the four bombs in 1943 and said he was going to leave more bombs around the city. One bomb injured six people at Macy's. Another was left in a phone booth and it exploded in someone's kitchen. They actually didn't realize that it was a bomb and they had taken it home, which is terrifying. So on December 2nd of 1956, one of FP's pipe bombs went off during a showing of War and Peace at the Paramount Theater, and six to 15 people were injured. Given the escalation in injuries, the New York City Police Department began to ramp up their investigation. At the time, it was described as their, quote, greatest investigation in department history. Police Commissioner Kennedy told every chief from every station that every police officer in the city should be on the lookout for this, regardless of their current assignment. That's pretty intense. But I mean, it makes sense because people were scared to do anything at this time. I mean, agreed, but presumably there were murders happening still. I mean, yes. But I would think like 
we don't know how far he can escalate, you know, especially because he had years between it, right? Mm -hmm. I imagine he was sitting there learning how to make him more extreme during those years. It's not like he just sat and like was paused. Commissioner Kennedy also reached out to the media and asked for their assistance and gave over lots of evidence from the now 16-year investigation. There were a substantial number of fruitless tips given, but Kennedy still persisted. He even provided fragments of the letters to the media. Please, just fucking help me. He was desperate for their help at this point. So one psychiatrist said that the Mad Bomber's handwriting suggested the, quote, deterioration of the bomber, mentally and physically, and increasing aggressiveness in his disordered desire to make his presence felt. So... Again, it's still 1956, and Captain Howard Finney of the New York City Crime Lab had been one of the people who was investigating this case for over 16 years. And he, as well as his colleagues, they started to wonder, what's going to happen if we don't find a lead soon? Specifically, they're like, he's going to kill someone. It's only a matter of time. So Captain Finney was talking to one of his colleagues, Captain John Cronin, who suggested that they consult with Dr. James A. Brussel. And Captain Cronin had met Dr. Brussel at a convention in Elmira, New York. Captain Cronin reached out to Dr. Brussel to see if he would assist with the case. And we'll talk about Dr. Brussel in a second. But he was reluctant at first because he was worried that if they didn't find someone based on what he provided or if he messed up, it would damage the legitimacy of psychology in police work in the future. And we talk about this is one of the first cases of profiling in the United States. It seems so bizarre to us now to think that there was a time when the two were separate. Yeah, that they didn't like ask for help. Yeah, or that they weren't considering the person's like state of mind. We know that psychology isn't hasn't always been seen how it is today, but I think the idea that there was a point in less than the past 100 years where we were convincing police like, "Oh, hey, perhaps you should think about what they're thinking about." is wild. Mhm. So, Dr. Brussel said, "I felt that my profession was being judged as well as myself." And curiously, I was one of my own accusers in this bizarre trial of wits. Did I really know enough about criminals to say anything sensible? I'd seen hundreds of offenders in my career, but had I learned enough from them and about them? So eventually, Dr. Brussels did agree to help, and he reviewed the letters as well as photographs from the crime scenes. And again, this was a massive deal because criminal profiles at this point were not something that was normally seen, and they really weren't highly regarded. Dr. Brussel, before this, had done profiling work in World War II and in the Korean War for counterintelligence. Which it's interesting that it would be used by the CIA, but not by police, right? They're like, it's good enough for you, but not good enough for us? Weird. And also, Dr. Brussel would also go on to help law enforcement catch the Boston Strangler, Robert D'Angelo. And that was fairly recently. Mm-hmm. Just to show like how recent all of this even was. Yes. So in his profile of FP, Dr. Brussel predicted that the bomber was not born in America and was of Eastern European descent, which is interesting because one of the first facts we talked about was that his parents had immigrated. He was 40 to 50 years old. He was living with women who were his relatives. He was clean shaven with an athletic build. He was neatly dressed and that in particular, he would be wearing a button double breasted suit which I don't know about you, but I didn't know what that meant. (laughs) And it's when there's two columns of buttons on a suit rather than just one. Yeah. And did you know why they thought he was of Eastern European descent? 
because of the particular type of weapon that he was terrorizing New York City with, which was particularly a bomb, which was a common tool that was being used by what he described as anarchists in that time. And other radicals. Yeah. Interesting that they could like kind of pinpoint that, right? Yeah. So Dr. Brussel also said that he was a textbook paranoid and what he met was a paranoid schizophrenic. So Dr. Brussel urged police to publish the profile. And all New York newspapers published the following on Christmas of 1956. I thought that was interesting that it was on Christmas. Right. It's like, Merry Christmas. Here's this terrible thing that's happening. Find him. So what they published was single man between 40 and 50 years old, introvert, unsocial, cunning, neat with tools, contemptuous of other people, egotistical of mechanical skill, disinterested of women. Resentful of criticism of his work, but probably conceals resentment. Expert in civil or military ordinance. Religious, probably. Roman Catholic. Present or former employee of Consolidated Edison. Possible motive. Discharge or reprimand. Resentment kept growing. Probably a case of progressive paranoia, which he got a lot right. Like it wasn't 100%, but he got a lot right. It was enough. I think for me, when they were like, he lives with his women relatives, I was like, oh, sir. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think it's because if he wasn't great socially and they thought that he was single, Mm -hmm. most men didn't really live alone. Like if, if you weren't married, you normally lived with your family. So police were then flooded with leads. And unfortunately, they went nowhere. Dr. Brussels was arriving home late one evening a few nights after the profile was published, and he received a call at 1 a.m. The caller said, this is FP. Keep out of this or you'll be sorry. Dr. Brussel tried to keep him on the line long enough for a trace, but FP hung up right after his threat. Doesn't that really feel like a movie? It really does. So anyways, he wasn't able to trace it. They hung up too quick. So FP was still unknown. Between December 25th and December 31st, there were over 130 bomb alerts. So people were on high fucking alert is what I'm hearing. Yeah. They're like, I saw an old sock in the street and like freaking out. I mean, and I would too, right? It makes sense. Right. Well, and thinking everyone saw these newspapers on the 25th, like everyone's home that day. Everyone's going to sit and read the newspaper. <laughs> everyone saw it. Yes. So... Police at FP communicated via letters written to the Journal American, which I find fascinating. In one letter, FP said, I was injured on the job at a consolidated Edison plant. As a result, I am a judge totally permanently disabled. I did not receive any aid of any kind from company that I did not pay for myself while fighting for my life. The Con Edison kept insisting that I place my claim before workman's compensation. I typed tens of thousands of words nobody cared. I got a sample, what you call our American system of justice. You people ask me to surrender myself. Well, sir, who is really guilty? You or I? And I just want to point out that like he is putting these personal details in there. And it very much seems as though he's not really trying to hide all too much, right? How much is he trying to hide versus like, is he just trying to be loud about the injustice that he felt like he experienced? Right. I mean, and his way of writing is very specific. Mm -hmm. So in another letter, FP said that the accident had occurred on September 5th of 1931. So now that they had that very particular piece of data, 
they had consolidated Edison check their records again. Now, it's worth noting that police obviously had told consolidated Edison, check your records, see if you can find anyone. And they were relatively unhelpful. I've seen some sources say where it says like, oh, they checked and couldn't find anything. And other sources saying where they were like, there's too many people this could be. Right. And that either way, there wasn't a narrowing down of people where it would help create a suspect pool that was at least like investigatable. That's a word. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, that works. I also saw that they just didn't have them. They said that was too far back. We don't have them anymore. Interesting. I don't know if they destroyed them or what, but they weren't able to. So it was just interesting because as we move on, we'll find out that that's not so true. Yeah. Well, that's what we're going to get into next is that it's Interesting that any source would say that if they clearly did have the information, because once they had that date, Con Edison was able to look into their records and show that there was somebody who fit that date, but also fit the profile. And that was George Bateski. And so on January 21st of 1957, Captain Pakul and a couple of detectives went to Bateski's home in Waterbury, Connecticut. And when they arrived, Bateski was wearing a burgundy robe and pajamas. And they described that his facial expression was kind of blank. Captain Pakul told Metesky that they had a warrant to search his home in relation to a hit and run. So Metesky let them in. And then the detectives began questioning Metesky about when he had recently gone to New York City and he admitted that he had. Now, throughout descriptions of this, what I've seen is that the detectives and Captain Pakul inferred very large logic jumps based on his facial expressions, his like basic admitting that he was in New York City. In one instance, I saw that they were like, he had a blank expression, like he knew why we were there. (laughs) And then he admitted he was in New York City because he knew we were on to him. And it's not really necessary. It's just kind of like editorializing for the sake of it, it felt like. But anywho, so they begin to search Metesky's home and they found a notebook that had handwriting that was similar to the handwriting that FP's letters had because it was kind of blocky in the way that it looked. And also, I mean, more or less, you can kind of see if handwriting is similar. Yeah. At this point, Metesky visually fit the profile, right? Like he had that athletic build. He was the right age. He was living in a house with women relatives, right? Like they're able to like check these things off. But the one thing that didn't work was that he was in pajamas. So he wasn't in that double-breasted suit. So they asked Pateski to change out of his pajamas so he could take them to the garage to search, which is just interesting because nowadays they're like, (laughs) get out of the way. We're going to search. We don't care what you're wearing or not wearing, right? Yeah. But so when Pateski came out of his bedroom, he was wearing a double-breasted suit. Metesky then took the detectives and Captain Pakul to the garage, and detectives and Captain Pakul would later describe the garage as clean and orderly as a hospital operating room. Oh, wow. Yeah. Detective Lynch then told Metesky that they were from New York and asked if Metesky knew why they were there. Metesky asked for an attorney and appeared nervous. Then the conversation they had per law enforcement was, Detective Lynch, never mind an attorney. Why are we here? Metesky, I guess it's because you suspect that I'm the mad bomber. Detective Lynch, tell me, George, what does FP stand for? Metesky, <sighs> fair play. Metesky would eventually go on to confess to leaving 54 bombs, which meant that over 20 were not found. That makes me nervous. It makes me nervous. It also makes me think that he really wasn't that great at building bombs because that means that 20 didn't go off, right? 20 more didn't go off. 
I saw rumors that there's one hidden in certain buildings in New York. Hmm. So Metesky was charged with 47 separate crimes, which included seven counts of attempted murder. One of Metesky's attorneys said that he looked like your next door neighbor and that he didn't stand out. But I feel like that's pretty common now, right? Like they're like, the quiet ones. I think what we know now is that everyone criminals don't look like what people say criminals look like. Right. Everyone's a criminal. What did they expect? Yeah. <laughs> Every neighbor is a criminal. You have to watch your that. neighbors are criminals. <laughs> Arrest them. Yes. <laughs> but no, it's true, though, right? You more just have to look yeah, and just be cognizant because everyone's a criminal. Everyone. So moving on back to this. Metesky actually wanted to go to trial because he wanted to show what Consolidated Edison had done that pushed him to this. The judge ruled that Metesky was not competent to stand trial after he was diagnosed with paranoid schizophrenia. I think it's interesting, though, that he's like, no, I want to go to trial because I want people to listen to me, which I find kind of heartbreaking. Yeah. Is that he's like, I just want someone to listen to what I'm saying. It is. Which I'm not saying do what you did, but it, it is kind of heartbreaking, the idea that he's like, this is what I'll do. Right. Just give me my podium to tell you what happened. Yeah. And now we have internet forums that people can just go off on about whatever, whenever they want. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. Metesky served the maximum period of hospitalization, which was 16 years and eight months at the Madawan Asylum for the Criminally Insane. That's a long time. So long time. He was never found to be competent to stand trial. He was then released in 1973, and then he moved home to Connecticut until his death in 1994. So he was in his 90s. Damn. So this company made him sick, but he did live a long life. He did. Which is interesting. He did live a long life. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Not saying they didn't do anything wrong, because like, I don't know. But it is interesting. But also, I mean, we're saying that he was in this mental hospital until the early 70s. We know that these facilities at that point in time were not great. No, not at all. So if he survived into his 90s after being in a place like that, yeah, just damn. Yeah, for sure. I find it all incredibly sad that one, New York City was terrorized for 16 years. I had never heard of this. I had heard of the bomber only because the Unabomber and how they compared him. Oh, interesting. But I, I didn't know the specifics. Hmm. But it is interesting and it is scary and it's sad that New York had to be fearful for a long time. Yeah. Because the police weren't, I mean, to be fair, they weren't given information that they asked for that did exist. But also it led to them making a partnership using psychologists and things like that to help create profiles so that we could do better today. Yeah, I think that's true. It was a, a good first step, if you will. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for joining us on one of our shorter episodes. In between all of this, we have been keeping up with the Lori Vallow trial, which has been wild. Yeah, that's our that's our every night. It's a little lately. A little chat of like, what's going on? Yeah. What did you see? Is this all we have? Okay, we're putting it up. Yeah, we speak like like weird forest witches. <laughs> yeah. That's how I sound at eleven thirteen every night. That's not that's not what your voice does at 11.13? Oh, no, 11.13 is my time to shine. That is like, no one's calling me. No one needs me. 
I get to just be me. Who's to say that's not me shining? That's me shining. That's me thriving. You said that's a forest witch voice. Oh my gosh. If I was a forest witch, I would be thriving right now. I'll be loving life, witching it up. I love forest witches. Nothing against them. But it reminds me of like a 90s cartoon witch voice. Oh, like like the, the one going under the stairs, yes. that particular yes. gif? Yes, exactly. absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I have a very like angular nose with a wart on it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I am inexplicably aged like Mozart. If you know, you know. <laughs> He's a mere 700 at 36. <laughs> but that is what we sound like. Or me and, and then Amanda. Apparently, Amanda's got some like sultry 1113 voice. Oh, no. I'm just like hype. You know how people are in the morning where they're like morning people? No. And they're stoked to be alive. I don't know those people, but they exist. That's me at 11. Is like my day is perfect and everything's great because no one needs me. See, I'm looking at in the mirror with mouthwash in my mouth going... <laughs> You need to go to sleep. You have a nine to five. That's actually a 730 to four. You need to go to bed right now. Anyway, rounding this out. So if you're loving True Creeps, we would love if you left us a review. If you do, send us a screenshot and your mailing address and we'll send you a sticker as a thank you. We also have a Patreon. If you want to see more on that, you can look at our show notes. Yeah. And we're already getting some of the pictures of where people were putting their new stickers. We did share it. And that was stickers plural this year. We sent two. Yes, we did send two very good ones. I was very excited about them. Yeah. Yeah. So if you have just received yours, post it so we could share it. Yeah. And with that, have a good weekend. Thanks for creeping with us. Thanks for listening. And as always, a special thank you to our patrons who support us via Patreon. Please see the link in our show notes to learn more about how you, yes, you, can begin to haunt the dump, guard vortexes, or even become a scorching Sasquatch. Also in our show notes, you can find the link to our website, more information on our sources, our social media handles, and our merch store. We'd love for you to keep creeping with us. So if you like this episode, please subscribe, rate, review, and share the show with your fellow creeps and or ghosts. I beg of you. (laughs) Which on a separate note, I feel I don't love the idea of domesticated birds because they can fly and they can go live this bird life. And why are they inside? I don't understand. Maybe there's a reason that I don't understand. We don't need to include this. This will go at the end. I'm rambling. But anyway, you shouldn't use them near birds, which like, okay. He's like, hold on, we're trying to get the trace. And I'm like, can you trace calls in 1956? That's what I was going to say. Like, I feel like in 1956, like, first off, him trying to find Dr. Brussels' phone number what, like in a phone book? He just calls the switchboard, I guess, right? It's a switchboard. <laughs> Hold on. <laughs> switchboard. 1956. When did we stop using switchboards? Oh, my God. When? Up to 1950. Well, I mean, think about it. They had phone booths. Mm, gonna fall. I'm going to fall deep into switchboard <laughs> Google. <laughs> so, like... How did he even get his number to? Like, was he looking him up in the phone book? Was that was that a thing then? I don't know. Is uh, he calling 411? Very, very recently, a relative of mine called 411. And I was like, what are you doing? The internet exists. Oh, man. Yeah. I haven't heard that in so long. I know. Or the reverse phone number lookups now. Like, anytime anyone calls me, I'm like, who is this?
Also, do you remember like star 69 <laughs> and you'd be like, who just called me? Right. Now you just look at your phone. You're like, that's the number. You used to pay extra for that. Now it's just standard. And that's what I was going to say. I was like, we weren't allowed to use that. We would get in trouble. You know what freaks me out, though? When they clone numbers that are in your phone. Oh, my gosh. Have you actually off topic, but on topic because it's important. Have you seen the, the threats people are getting? Their family members calling them. Mm-hmm. But it's not their family member. Asking- and they're like, we have your sister or whatever. And it's like their sister's fine. It's just they happen to have the number. Yeah. No, it freaks me out. Yeah. That can be a whole ass other episode. And oh. it will be. That'd be a good one. Move this to the end. He has a Ron Swanson type of vibe with people knowing his like business. <laughs> I love that. So it yes. was like, I felt like really bad for him because of like all the people that I knew. I would want this release for him because it like got him to his soul. Did he throw away his whole computer? I think he wanted to. But they had used, they had cloned his number. So then people started calling back and were like, why are you doing this? And he's like, I didn't do anything. Oh, no. That's awful. Yeah. Have you seen that thing where it's like, have you ever seen your neighbors carrying groceries? Yes. Yes. And you're in a simulation because you never see it. Yeah. I have seen my neighbor carrying groceries, though. So I felt safe. I mean, it was like twice. I've seen one. But it was only after seeing that meme that I was like, oh, no. But your brain probably just like filed it, though, and was like, meh, I don't need this. Well, Oh, we have garages. So like there's only one or two neighbors on my street. They even park in their driveway. And so I just assumed that they were all in their garages unpacking their groceries often. Do you know what Amanda's neighbors do in their driveways on Thursday afternoons? They have yard sales with lots of different (laughs) things, but everything for $5. It was like from 1 p.m. to 3 p.m. on a Thursday. It was so weird. was into it, though. And he wanted to go in every day. I mean, we had to check because they were like, what if they had different different wares sales on each day? But yeah. What if it was like bake sale Friday? I mean, I have seen a couple lemonade stands. Oh, we're doing a yard sale this summer. And I was like, Olivia's going to need a lemonade stand. Clearly. Oh, how cute. I would give her all my money. I know. I'm going to hook her. I'm going to like give her a Venmo. <laughs> She's, she'll be three. <laughs> Perfect. (laughs) Did you see the TikTok I sent you about being a critter at night? And that's why you can't sleep. I also sent you that one. Perfect. (laughs) Amanda and I also like we send each other TikToks, not at the same schedule in which we're looking at each other's TikToks. So we'll often send the same ones. Yeah, it'll (laughs) come up on our feed before we've seen what we've sent each other. Yeah, she's like, that's my, like, I forget what she how she phrases it, but she's like, that's my weird critter time. She's like, how am I supposed to do it? She's like, my zany, weird critter time. Yeah. She's like, how do I go to bed earlier if I'm going to lose my zany, weird critter time? I'm saying it absolutely wrong. <laughs> Welcome to end of the episode. We watched too many TikToks. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Last time it was Capybara. Capybara, Capybara, Capybara. Oh, yeah. And I, I did organically, now that I checked, make it to Capybara TikTok. Capybara TikTok is dead. We're at, we're on to Jasper the Doll. <laughs> Are you on Jasper the Doll? No, not yet. What? But I went back to my what? to my likes because I was like, I had to have already been here and just didn't know it. And I was. And I sent you the original <gasps> you one. You were. Yeah. Yeah. Jasper the Doll is a Barbie? Question mark? That has Sharpie all over her face pretty and like mouth and her hair is cut off kind of maybe i don't know the name i've seen people making fun of it 
Yeah, stop. I'm making a video. That one. Yes, yes. Okay. Yes. yes. She calls a spider a spitter in one, <laughs> and it makes me laugh. But my favorite part is that in late stage capitalism, corporations are sending Jasper the Doll merch. Like Nutter Butter, the cookies yeah. are sending Jasper the Doll doll hoodies that say nut. <laughs> That they've cut out of one of their packages. And I was like, there is some like Gen Z social media manager just fucking thriving at Nutter Butter right now. But like, that's the weird world that we live in. Is that like, Nutter Butter's like, do you know how we're going to get people to buy these peanut butter cookies? Fucking Jasper the doll. What a time to be alive. Maybe that's what we need to be doing is sending True Creeps merch to dolls. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> do you have a doll can we send doll clothes to your doll yeah should we maybe we should make like a little gown a little gown yeah i know i know what i'm doing tonight we need we need a doll gown we need like mm, there's a lot of dogs it would be hard to narrow it down but we need dog clothes for some of these dog bandanas dogs. yep mm-hmm. cat mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. obviously have you seen hazel I believe is her name. She is a tiny chihuahua that does a lot of like eating things into a microphone. Oh, okay. Yeah. And I, as a person, I cannot stand mouth sounds. So it's kind of, it's a little bit of exposure therapy for me because I am less enraged by mouth sounds by this creature. Fair. But she is one of the cutest things I've ever fucking seen in the world. Her human is often making her like things and she's like, I'm ready for my sous chef duty. And she like tastes things as they're going. That's adorable. Maybe we need to send Hazel something. And then there's Rory, the French bulldog that is obsessed with Henry Superman Witcher. Yeah. Yeah. Is obsessed with him. I like that her um, shrine has grown. Oh, my gosh. And there's like pillows of him. Yeah. Yeah. And she actively cuddles him. I yeah. I mean All right. again. Oh, we, too much TikTok. We figured it out. We figured out how to make okay, it. Okay, one more. One more. Have you seen Walter the cat? Which one's that? I have a lot of cats on my feed cuz Oliver looks up cat videos on a daily basis. Okay, he is a cat that looks like Harry but he is bigger and the entire TikTok is his humans bringing food to him to see if he will like it or whether it will make him gag because he just Automatically gags at food. Oh yes, like the broccoli. Even things that he likes, he's like Ugh. the broccoli. <laughs> like one. the little like yeah. Yes, he has broccoli. They've given him. They've tried like mac and cheese. Even the little like you know the cat goo that comes in the tubes that kind of look like a pixie sticks tube. Yeah, we say it's kitty cat gogurt. Kitty cat gogurt. Yeah, that's what we call it at our house. I love that for you. He gags at that, and then he's like, "Wait a second, I actually do like that." What they did when they did it, I just accidentally touched my microphone with a piece of chicken that's going at the end end of the show